0: Good morning, and welcome back to another week-delayed episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I am your co-host, Dave Kale. I am here with the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson. Sadly, we're here without the Tolkien maven, Trish Lambert, so we're just going to have to soldier on just the two of us, but that's all right. There was once upon a time when we could do these podcasts with just the two of us. <laughs> that's um, right. It, I, I'm, you know, Quite frankly, I'm surprised that this is even happening without Trish since
1: that was sort of originally Trish came on because of our, our utter lack of organization. <laughs> um, yes. Tr- uh, D- Dave was expressing his skepticism or, or confessing his skepticism that we were actually going to be able to get it together. Um, yeah. but here we are more or less yes. together. Yes. There,
0: yeah. There was once upon a time when we were, when we were capable people who actually occasionally pulled this off on a semi-regular basis without other people,
1: uh, uh, babysitting us. <laughs> But nobody really wants to go back to those days.
0: No, no, definitely not. We
1: are,
0: we are sort of, we are, we are as usual, um, like we don't have, we didn't prepare any show notes. Yeah,
1: exactly. We're kind of winging it in ways that we don't normally, but hey, that's okay. Um, (laughs) Hey, I wanted to just start off. We have a a bunch of really great comments on the discussion board that I want to, that I want to address. There are a couple sort of broader issues that I wanted to, to, to talk about that were, that were raised really, really excellent points. Um, that I think are going to be very important for our discussion moving forward. Um, the first thing that I want to talk about because it, it's the it's the broadest uh, issue of all. And today is really the first day, you know the first episode where we're going to be confronting this issue. so I thought it was it was it was a very timely question. Um, and the the question was, uh, was posted by Carita Alexander um who is asking basically the big question is what kind of danger can the valar actually be in you know one of the one of the issues of course is if we're going to have any you know any drama any suspense any any you know uh peril that people are going to be in um how do we how do we do that with people who are not only immortal like elves are but basically impervious people that are ju- that are not even Incarnated aren't even bound to their bodies in ways that elves are. Elves, of course, can still—I mean, there are still consequences. Elves can still die; they can still suffer um, in their persons. But uh, but what about the Valar? You know, what what do you do? H- how can you have any drama or suspense with creatures who are only only have bodies in the first place? Just because they kind of felt like having bodies, right? I mean, surely if they're under any kind of threat, they can just cease having a body temporarily right. remake their body yeah. or whatever. Um, this is a, this is an excellent question. Um, and the first thing that I would say before we even go, I think there are some things to be, to be said about, uh, to be said about that in several people, uh, Nicholas and, and Hakan in particular, um, I made some really excellent points about that, but before I even get to their specific points, uh, on the biggest possible, uh, the, uh, sort of the biggest possible view of this question, I think it's important that we not restrict ourselves to thinking about that kind of danger. You know, that kind of that kind of problem. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I feel like the extent to which the drama, especially in season one, you know, the extent to which when. It's like, what's at stake in this is not primarily or fundamentally the survival, you know, and like the bodily integrity of the protagonists. Um, Yep. That's often kind of the implicit, you know, I mean, of course, like, you know, generally in a good story that, you know, the protagonists have some kind of larger cause other than their own than merely their own survival or continuation, which is sort of at stake. But, um, but nevertheless, there's still, there's still always this, you know, one of the fundamental kind of informing dramatic questions is like, but are they going to survive? You know, how are they going to make it out of this one? And I don't think that when we're telling the story of the Valar, I I don't think that we need to try to create a situation in which that kind of story makes sense. That's not what's at stake for the Valar. No question of whether or not they're going to survive. Um... The question is... Well, I mean, how would you put the question, Dave? I mean, I I would say there are two things really at stake. If we want to ask, what's at stake? What is the drama about? Again, the drama isn't about their survival. The drama is about, A, the big picture, which is like the fulfillment of their job. You know, they are trying to make middle earth, you know, they're trying to shape and form middle earth. They have been made the deputies of middle earth. They have, it has, been, you know, they are the delegated authorities of not just middle earth of, of Arda, you know, it has been placed under their jurisdiction and they're supposed to make something of it, you know, following the, 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 the plan of aluvatar just like in the music, right. In the music, the, the, the theme is given to them by a and they're supposed to adorn it. You know, they're supposed to do yep. it. Um, So they have a responsibility for how Arda turns out. And that's the biggest question is, you know, to what extent are their purposes going to be ultimately aligned with what Iluvatar has done? They, they, you know, Arda is going to stand or fall based on what they do and how well they do it. And I think there has to be, it has to be clear that there's some real, there's some real issue there, you know, that, that, Things can actually go bad, go badly. They could screw it up. Um, right. So, so that's what, but at the same time, that's a pretty impersonal dramatic core, right? Like the ultimate, will the world turn out well or not is something that is perhaps going to be not something we can rely upon. It- yeah, it doesn't it seems a little
0: the it's certainly doesn't have the same immediacy as will they die or
1: not. <laughs> right, exactly. Hard to build a cliffhanger on the how is the how are things going to have turned out in the end question, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um uh, right, right. So but, but 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 at the same time, I mean, I would insist that fundamentally that's the biggest question, right? That that's the biggest drug. It's not about their survival, but it's about their success. Like, are they going to succeed? Are they are they going to fail um, in the job that they've come that they've come to do? But sorry, Dave, you wanted to add something there?
0: Um, no, 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 no. Uh, I, no, I, I I was just sort of I, I was following up on that thought about um, you know like that. I, I that's something I, I guess I hadn't really considered. We've been talking about storylines with the Valar for for months now, um, and in several cases, talking about like trying to put particular Valar in uh, danger in order to create some drama. You know, that's one of the things we were discussing for how to how to introduce Tolkis into. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, you know, like a, trying to come up with a way to have Tolkis show up a little bit earlier, etc uh and we hadn't you know well maybe this thought crossed your mind um but it hadn't crossed my mind yet that that you know like putting the valor in danger doesn't they're they're not not really in danger at least certainly not in the same way that like one of the children would be um if they were in the same position yeah i, I you know maybe maybe we can just not worry about it. like maybe the viewer probably won't catch on, you know, uh, other than like your most dedicated Silmarillion reader, they probably actually won't be cognizant of that while they're watching. But um,
1: yeah, that's an interesting dilemma. But it is certainly true that you're right. I don't think, I don't think we need to go that far. I mean, this is like, of course you could call it another advantage of having Estelle, who is receiving these lessons, be so young. We're not going to get into advanced metaphysics, right? I mean, like, There's no real reason for us to get into at this, certainly not at this point. Um, You know, what is the difference between the relationship between body and spirit in the case of the Valar versus the relationship between body and spirit in the elves? And how does that in turn differ from the relationship body and spirit to the men? Um this is not a question which is of course even relevant because they're not even here yet um and you're right dave that i can't imagine that the majority of the viewers of the show would be really agonizing over that spontaneously as we go through this there'll um, be
0: there'll be some internet uh pundits but that'll be about right, it
1: right right yeah exactly <laughs> Philip Menzies says, the Valar don't get eaten by the eels at this time. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, exactly. Um, I, though we can assume that uh, that people might look a little nervous, uh, nevertheless. Um, yeah, yeah, no, so... But I do think, nevertheless. Um, so, first, Dave, I agree on the one hand, we can kind of bank on the general assumptions that people are going to make. We can have them threatened, and hope it sort of <laughs> hope that people don't think about it too much. But that doesn't really seem like an excellent solution to the problem, right? Like, hey, I know. Let's mm-hmm. just hope people don't actually put much thought into this. Um And especially long longer term, I think this is going to come up. I mean, I do I I, I can see us actually talking a little bit more about this kind of thing or having these questions arise more explicitly in later seasons when we're actually dealing with elves and men. Um, You know, not that we're going to have whole shows dedicated to metaphysical discussions, but but I think that there is going to need, you know, when we have the Valar and the elves, especially if they're going to look pretty much alike, Um, we are going to have to make it pretty clear to our readers what exactly is the difference between them, you know, Mm -hmm. so that's going to come. And when that does come, we need to make sure that retroactively it still works with what we've actually said. Um, in uh, in 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 season one. Um, so yeah, Corita, Exactly what I don't want to say is let's not mention the imperviousness of the Valar and hope that nobody notices. That I think is a is <laughs> a solution. vastly well, Im- I think that sounds like solution. A great bet. <laughs> no, no. Don't talk about it. Yeah, exactly. So here's my here here's here's my my solution. Basically, the emphasis is. The, the, the way we could get around this is not by emphasizing physical danger or rather having physical danger be only a kind of metaphor. Let me... I, I know that seems like, oh, well, that makes it really gripping. Right? Oh, yeah, okay, don't worry. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry. The danger is, is... Let's have metaphorical danger. What I mean by this is... <clears throat> like... <laughs> When Nessa, when, <laughs> when Nessa is captured, right? Um, when Nessa is captured, what is the drama here? Like, what is the issue? What is the what is the th- now? Here I am segueing into what I wanted to talk about later, anyway. Um, but. The question is not like this. Is not like a hostage crisis, right? Where like Ungoliant captures Nessa and is like holding a knife to her throat or something and threatening to threatening to you know to to to, to, to cut her throat or rip her toenails out or do some other kind of physical torturous harm to her, right? That's not the, That's not the issue. That's not what Ungoliant wants out of it. That's not what Nessa or any of the rest of them are afraid of. We can we can keep. Um, we can keep the, the, fo- the focus of the danger away from the purely physical. That doesn't have to be the issue. Because it isn't really the issue with the Valar. But the Valar can't... They might not be able to die. I mean, you can't stab them with a knife and do them in. But you can corrupt them. They can be damaged. They can be mm-hmm. hurt. They can be wounded uh, in spirits. Because they can be corrupted. We know they can be corrupted. Um and think about the overarching theme within Tolkien. I mean think of think of how suffering wounds people, right? Um mm-hmm. and and this we see this happen, you know, even even Melian has to go for a prolonged time out after you know the death of thingol and her retreat from doriath right i mean she she has suffered um and and she uh, she she's she goes off she goes back to lorian um you know she goes she goes into this you know sort of retreat and and my reading of that what i would want to do with that with melian is that she needs time to recover she's she's she is grieving she has experienced grief and it has damaged her it is it, it is you know she needs to heal um and that and So can she be physically damaged? No, there's no. You know, you don't have to worry. You know, Melian never had to worry about somebody coming. You know, somebody like putting arsenic in her soup. But she does. She can be hurt, Um, and she can fall. Even more importantly. Right, so there is suffering which can be inflicted upon the Valar. Um, I think about the way that the Valar suffer when the when the trees are destroyed. Right, uh, this mm-hmm. is a serious loss on their part, and they are grieving for the trees. Not just Nienna, uh, who, the professional griever, but the amateurs are grieving as well. Um, so, so, so it's it's it's. it's that I think is really the main issue. And and, and more importantly, the question of corruption, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just, so the question is not, will Nessa be killed? It's, will Nessa be tormented and damaged, you know, sort of emotionally, spiritually damaged by what has happened. And more importantly, is she going to be corrupted? Um, Is she going to be tainted? Is she going to be twisted so that she is going to end up falling? That's another thing that can happen. Um, and so that when, so when we're talking about the personal fate of the Valar and sort of what's at stake with them, to me, that that's, what's at stake with them. Um, and, and that, that's what I meant when I said metaphorical danger, of course, like we can't, you can't like just directly depict emotional suffering on screen or when you do, you just end up showing people making faces for long periods of time, and that gets dull. Um, So when I talk about metaphorical, it's like, yeah, we're going to have to show, you know, when Nessa is captured, she will have to be in some kind of physical duress, right? Right, We, We will have to represent her as being under some kind of physical duress. And there can even be a kind of correlation, visual correlation, between... The suffering that's being inflicted upon her spiritually and emotionally, and the and 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 physical suffering that's being inflicted upon her body. Um, but again, but the issue isn't, and we don't have to pretend that the issue is ultimately fundamentally a physical one. Um, uh-huh. uh, we could even have one of the Valar comment on this, you know, like when she's captured, and and uh, um, and and have somebody basically say. Well, like, you know, can't she just like, you know, <laughs> de- like dematerialize and rematerialize here? Like, if her body got captured, can't she just ditch that body? And come- I mean, we, we could even, if we want, I don't think we should necessarily, but we could even have someone comment on that because the response to that would be, do you think that's going to make everything go away? Right. I mean, do, do you think therefore that this experience is going to have? If she does that, that this experience she's going to erase this experience from her memory um you know so that when they rescue nessa um it's not just about like we must preserve her physical body um it, it's about we you know th- they're rescuing her is as, as much about sort of helping her out of you know sort of helping her through that you know the 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 sort of spiritual crisis that she is in as much right. as this. I mean uh, uh, the, talking about it this way makes it sound really hokey which is why I don't want to talk about it explicitly in the show because it it's, it's always really hokey when talk about it's like but, but her emotional wounds are going to be very deep like yeah. you just can't say that without sounding stupid but, sure
0: she was never in any actual danger <laughs> <but> I,
1: <laughs> right exactly um,
0: but I, I, I think this is a I think this is a I think you're right like it it is it's, it's a little hard to describe it's certainly not something you'd want to get in the business of describing on screen, um, but I think, but this is, I think this is a a satisfactory um, uh, uh, solution, just because, because, because that was true. I think that was true. That's even true of like the Istari when they come over the Middle Earth. That like. They are in some sense immortal, but by taking on physical forms, they subjected themselves to to the kinds of things that happen to people with physical forms, which is pain, suffering, old age, infirmity, you know, probably pulled hamstrings and right. uh, stubbed right. toes Aching and things joints. like that.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and and the temptations that come along with those things, right? You know, yeah, of yeah, course, yeah. the Maya can be tempted even without the kinds of bodies. Cause it is true. The wizards have different, you know, that their relationships with their bodies are different from the other Maya. They're actually incarnated. Um, yeah. you know, and Tolkien is insistent upon that. They could be tempted of course, wi- without their bodies, but their bodies expose them to a different kind of, 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 of fear, different kind, different sorts of temptations, different kinds of desires and, and, uh, and, and doubts and, uh, and, and temptations. Um, and it seems that although like Saruman was kind of already sort of cruising for the uh the direction he ended up going you know he might not have gone in exactly that way had yep. you know had he remained in Valinor but um anyway i i um um so this is this this is in in essence, Dave, I feel like what I'm doing is kind of agreeing with the thing that you originally said, which is that we just don't talk about it that much and hope nobody <laughs> catches on. But again, the point is not that we're trying to pull a fast one on everybody. It's just I, 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 I don't think we have to make a big deal of it, necessarily. Um, I just, uh, you know, but we can even have... When people talk about it, like, you know, it's going to come up, right? You know, Nessa's been captured. Mm -hmm. We have to rescue Nessa. When they talk about why they need to rescue Nessa, their own emphasis can make it clear, right? You know, they don't have to be, you know, obviously they're not going to be all like, oh, like, we must save her before she, you know, or else she'll die, right? They're not going to say that. Um, That's not going to be the issue. Their focus will be on... What is going to happen? To what will be the consequences for her? How how is she going to be wounded by this experience? Might she right. even be corrupted? Might might she even might this experience form her or help to shape her into something unrecognizable, um, uh, you know, from her uh, previous form? And here, so, I think, here uh, I think uh, I just, is where Nessie is so cool for that. But anyway, I'll talk about that later. Go on. I was just kind of, sort of, I think the other thing
0: that I'm curious about is, um, you know, like, to what extent do, to what extent do people who, who, you know, like, like beings who have bodies, however they acquired them, whatever sort of the actual, the underlying metaphysical status of those bodies, to what extent, like, I don't think that, I don't think that the Valar are going to be just walking around in these bodies constantly cognizant of the fact or reminding themselves you know in their heads like this body isn't real it doesn't matter what happens to it like I feel like I feel like embodiment Sort of inevitably, like the more time you spend embodied, especially in the same body, the more you're going to become attached to it and think of it as part of yourself. Like I think we certainly see that with the with the I, I understand the the Astari are are in some sense again you know sort of at their metaphysical status of their bodies is different from the bodies of the the Valor and the and the and the um, Mayar, um you know uh, I, uh, early on, but I, but I think but I think still, like, I still think it's illustrative. And you see Gandalf is, like, you know, even, af- even like, post-resurrection Gandalf, Gandalf the White, when when he's being carried by the eagles, um, uh, uh, Gwaihir makes this comment, like, you know, oh, I don't mind carrying you now because you're pretty light. I'm pretty sure if I let you go you would probably just float. And Gandalf's like, no, no, don't drop me, don't drop me. And, he, and Gandalf makes this comment that, you know, sort of, Fear and like you know, fear for his own life had returned to him for the first time since his resurrection. Yes, and I'm kind of thinking that that maybe is maybe that that is sort of in that's like inevitable or that's like you know necessary for a person with a body. Like like you know, if you have a body and you spend a lot of time in it, you're kind of going to become attached to it. And you're going to start to reflexively want to protect it. So so it may not be the case necessarily that that. You know, this may be less of an issue because, sort of, naturally, if these guys have been running on bodies, Ness is going to fear. You know, like, like she's not going to be able to suffer, sort of, the metaphysical or emotional suffering from, sort of, like a, uh, you know, a fear of pain, um, or torture, or even, even destruction of her body. And maybe the, 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 the other, you know, the other Valar may not necessarily be able to separate that either.
1: Yes. Yes. Um. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. This is, it's, I think it's a reflection. Um, their relationship with their bodies are, or, or at least we can depict it as a reflection of their commitment to Arda itself, right? They, they are bound to Arda. Um, that doesn't mean that they're stuck in their bodies. Like, we can't literalize that too much. And they can change their bodies. We're going to depict them changing their bodies, right? Their bodies are going right. to change in season two um, when the elves come. But uh, and I think that we can even depict them as changing under different circumstances. Like I'm kind of thinking when, you know, when uh, when when Orome and Tolkis march to war, I don't think they're going to look exactly the same as they look you know just hanging out uh uh in in uh, in elmarin so um they can change themselves but you're right they, they they're i i i think it makes perfect sense for us to depict the valar as being committed to this whole body thing right um to this whole physical form thing that for them to uh uh you know they can walk about unbodied it's an option for them and they can sometimes do that but it's not what they normally do they are committed to being in arda um and uh uh and and to 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 be so 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 i i think now uh, hakan uh makes some excellent points about this and he's thinking in particular about the way in which melkor and sauron's powers diminish um as they invest themselves more in matter what i would add to that though is it's not just about being invested in matter in the sense of committed to matter um, but rather they distribute their power in malice to others. Um, it is yeah. their desire to dominate others in the way in which Melkor and Sauron both are sort of constantly pushing their own will and their own spirit out into others in order to dominate them. Essentially, their desire to, and this is putting it in enormously crude point, uh, crude terms, but their desire to basically make themselves bigger Right? To kind of take everything into themselves and to, 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 not just to be in relationship with things that are other to them, but to dominate them, to make these other things an extension of themselves. By trying to extend themselves out like this, in the end, they dilute themselves and they weaken themselves um, and their own power over themselves. Melkor's, uh, he's tied to his physical stature, um, uh, to, to his, Physical body, which which you know, and FinGolfin's being able to to, to wound it as uh, um, as as uh, I, yeah, Hawkin was pointing that out. Um, <clears throat> uh, it, it's it's and Sauron, of course, we see him weakening himself in the same way, especially of course with the creation of the ring. Um, so, but 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 that I think is a different thing from the kind of investment in matter that I'm talking about. Um, as far as just like commitment to Arda, basically. Um, and they're desiring to sort of really kind of be within Arda. Um, so anyway, that's, um, that's what I'm thinking. Uh, um, yeah. So Kimber asks, do they need, uh, bodies to interact physically with the world? Well, yeah, if they're going to interact physically, then absolutely they must. They can, they can move about unbodied, right? So they can see and hear things and be invisible, um... But if they're gonna interact with things, then they they should have physical bodies, yeah, uh you know they, is that the only way they can interact? No, this gets us into song and magic that as we talked about you know in season zero um so that kind of thing of course is certainly um uh is certainly possible um but uh but yeah, I mean by default, they're gonna be in physical bodies, um, and I think that that's i think that that's. That that's fine, um, okay. Um, but anyway, as I said, that was a, that was a really great um, that was a really great point, and I'm really glad that we have kind of raised that explicitly because it's something which could easily be um, you can just kind of get silly if we don't really think it through. Um, and it forward. led to a to, to a
0: wonderful digression into the nature of suffering and embodiment
1: <laughs> right exactly exactly um the other thing that I wanted to mention before we shift to today's uh, today's episode is uh, a point that uh, Philip made again. Philip, you're doing a wonderful job of like you know keeping uh, me honest about book changes and things like that. Um, Philip is pointing out very rightly that we have already, without really acknowledging that we were doing it, um, made a, a pretty a, a, another pretty significant uh, deviation from the published Silmarillion, which of course we're free to do if we want to, but, um, but, but he's right that we didn't even really acknowledge it. And that is the sequence of things in particular, the growth of plants and the birth of animals. Um, because of course that is correlated on the first page of chapter one of the Quenta, um, the, of the beginning of days chapter that we've been in the whole season so far. Um, the, the 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 growth of uh, of uh, mosses and grasses and great ferns and trees and things like that um those are correlated and the and the arrival of beasts those are correlated with the lighting of the lamps so that is when the world is still in darkness then there's nothing growing of course and when the lamps are lit then um then, you know, then trees grow and then animals come. And like when we were talking last time, for instance, about, you know, the conflict and resolution that we were considering last time and how Melkor is going to come in and be like, oh, no, everything's fine. And he's going to come in, you know, and, and be accepted as somebody who, if not quite a savior figure, is at least a pretty awesome guy. Um, but the whole, you know, the, the kind of elemental drama that we were thinking about last time, about the, you know, the the extremes of hot and cold and all those things we're kind of presupposing the existence already of uh growing and living things and i think he is perfectly right about that um that is philip is perfectly right um that um we have uh we have done that um but um anyways i, I think uh we can um what we're gonna to need to do here is be a little bit careful about that, that we can we need to make a distinction um when the lamps come in. I mean, of course, it, it really brings up the frankly uncomfortable question. Um that the world as a whole, there can be light and should be light, I think in Elmerin. Um, itself. That is, it's not to say that we will have to have had completely dark sets throughout the entire series so far. Um, there can be light in Elmerin without there having to have been, you know, celestial lights or anything. Without there having to be genuine daytime outside. Um, without there being a sun in the sky. Um, and without the lamps. I mean, like, you can't tell me that before the lamps were lit you know it was ne- there was never any light around Varda for instance i mean you know i don't i can't imagine that um and i can't imagine that's how things happened the lamps were clearly a mechanism for transmitting light outwards through the rest of the world not necessarily like and then they lit the lamps and the power looked a- looked around themselves and at each other and were like oh that's what you look like we've been in pitch darkness this whole time like that obviously didn't happen so Having some light there in Almarin is fine, but um, thinking about the rest of the world, we do need to have, at the very least, gloom, right? Because we don't even, theoretically, we don't even really have stars yet, or rather, do we have stars we do have stars. Uh, we do have stars. We just don't yeah, have. Because so. it's when Varda makes the stars later on, she's not making all the stars. She's just making like the great constellations and, and things. She's making signs in the stars and bigger stars. Um, so we have, we, have, we have starlight. So we can have a faint light around the world. And I think that we can have things, living things, animals, and some form of plant life. Perhaps, but it needs. But there needs to be a significant shift. There needs to be a significant moment. Um, mm-hmm.
0: uh,
1: you know, when when the lamps are lit, where things really right. really grow. That's when things uh, take off. Yeah, yeah. Um, Does that
0: is is there? Will there be something sort of fundamentally different about the plants and? Well, I wonder what kind of plants we could possibly have without any light.
1: (laughs) Well, see, there's some lights, just not very much. Lots of moss and fungus, just moss and (laughs) fungus all over the place. But it was awesome fungus. Um, I don't like the moss and fungus idea. I'm not going to lie about that. Um, (laughs) Here's the idea. Okay. Okay. All right, no, I don't really have the idea clearly. What I what I want to suggest and this is um in as far as I was following it um which uh I, I'm not 100% sure that I was. Um some people on the discussion board were talking about this about light being existing um but not but being sort of more diffused in essence Um, Mm -hmm. that, you know, so that we have, you know, there, there needs to be a change. Like the lighting of the lamps needs to be a big deal, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a big deal in the sense of it used to be dark and now it's totally bright. I mean, I think we can have, um, We can it's
0: just sort of this like vague, vague, no source specific like ambient light that's just kind of in the in the ether or something.
1: Yeah, sort of. Basically. <laughs>
0: um, <sighs> well, I mean, I think that the genesis of this thought from Philip is is a good one, which is where does the light come from? Um. You know, like the like 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 when they when they create the lamp when they create the lamps and they fill them with light. Where where are they drawing that light from to fill it out of thin air? Or, um, but yeah, right. it's, yeah, I don't know. Right. Exactly.
1: actually, okay. Here, all right. I'm liking this idea now. All right. Okay. All right. Okay. And the angle that I'm getting at it here is I have to admit, not a not a physical one. That is, I'm thinking about this not as how we can do the mechanics, but I'm thinking about it thematically. What if the movement from pre-lamps to lamps... We're getting into the question now of why make lamps in the first place, right? Right. Um, one reason to make lamps in the first place is if there is no light source and Hey, I've got a great idea. Let's introduce into this world, a light source, right? The reason I'm resistant to that, I, I think that's a bad motivation for the lamps. And the reason I think it's a bad motivation for the lamps is it just doesn't make, it doesn't actually make all that much sense. Um, you don't start, I mean, they've been shaping the world for quite some time I'm like, what's Yavanna been doing? She's been sowing seeds and stuff. So that when this happens, they forget, yeah, fine. But anyway, I just, I don't think that we can possibly hold the idea that they've been working on the world for a really long time and they've been shaping it. And now they've finally gotten around to introducing some form of light source where before there was almost no light whatsoever anywhere in the world. Um, imaginatively, I can't, not only can I not think of how we could possibly depict that on screen, I can't even imagine that. I mean, when I imagine the vow are shaping the world, I imagine that happening in a way that I can see it happening, right? Um, and light seems so fundamental and so basic. Um, you know, there's a reason why light happens on the first day of creation. For crying out loud, it's a good idea to start with that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but so 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 the question is, if it's not just to introduce a light source into the world, if there was a light source in the world, if there was just a kind of Sort of low, um, you know, so, uh, low ambient light everywhere. You know, say that like the the whole sky itself can just kind of glow. Um, actually, yeah, yeah, I like this. Okay, so let's say beforehand the sky was just like dusk. Say, okay, not 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 like radiant sunset dusk, um, but like like just after the sun has set or right before the sun rises. When the sky is is still light and you can still see, you know that time, and I'm sure we all remember this from our childhood, even if it might not have happened to you as often now as it has in your childhood. You know those times when you're outside through through the sunset and the dusk and you're outside and you can still see perfectly well, right? And you feel like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's still light. And then you go inside where the lights are on and it looks like it's pitch dark outside, right? Yeah. But, but again, when you're out in it, you can see perfectly well, right? Because this sky, the sky is still aglow with enough ambient light to, for you to see perfectly well. I'm thinking that light may be a little bit higher uh, the, the light level's a little bit higher than that. So it's still dim, but, it's, but but the sky is just, you know maybe there is a kind of cloud cover that is a light. Um, and it get, it provides low level light everywhere. The shift then, in making the lamps is to collect the light to have this really gorgeously radiant light in some places, um, and the reason I really like this idea um, is that this is very much like, this follows the pattern that we see with the Valar. This is like the this is like the, the Valinor project. Mm-hmm. In other words, the desire to build the lamps can be flawed from the beginning mm. on the one hand it's a good idea, right because it i mean the lights are beautiful so when the lamps come up that's the first time we have something which really looks like sunlight right It can be like the color of sunlight it can be it can you know it, it, it's really bright, and so there we do see now you know real trees and real flowers and everything springing up and growing around it where there wasn't before there were just you know, sort of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of like the kind of growth that there is like in high altitudes and things like that. Um, you know, th- there can be sort of s- sort of more stunted growth, Of, but there can be growth. There is enough light to support plants, but not big plants, not full trees um, and not flowers necessarily. But okay, okay. So, so on the one hand, the collecting of the light into the lamps creates this gorgeous luminous light, but it also creates real darkness in mm-hmm. more distant parts of the world. So that while on the one hand the Valar are collecting la- the light together and creating, in the midst of the world, or you know, in the greater Almarin area, they're creating this blissful, awesome, sunlit paradise they're also kind of hoarding the light. Um, yep. And again, this is what they did in Valinor, right? They hoard the blessedness into the blessed realm and kind of not exactly turn their backs on Middle-earth, but, um, you know, they put up a wall between themselves and Middle-earth and, and live happily over... I mean, anyway, this is the accusation, right? And it seems to be this is a tendency that the Valar seem to have, and that can be Melkor's idea.
0: <laughs> the whole oh, like
1: Let's bring all the light together, Right.
0: What um, what so so um, let's see. Let me go back to the questions really fast. Um, ah, David Baxter asked, is, is this are there sort of roots of this idea in the Book of Lost Tales? He says, you know, he he mentioned he asks about references to light just sort of hanging around, gathering in pools, et cetera, well, almost like water.
1: Yeah, it's certainly the the uh, the, uh, the the concept of light as a liquid um, is still there in the Silmarillion. I mean, you remember the 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 the, the dew that drops from the trees, uh, you know, mm. the the luminous dew which is gathered into vats, which is eventually, you know, uh, drunk up by Ungoliant. Um, That idea, which really, that's the only moment I can think of in the, uh, published Silmarillion, where we still really strongly get that idea of, you know, light as liquid, um, other than perhaps this, the, 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 the crashing and spilling of the lamps themselves, which also sort of implies a kind of intense concentrated liquid light, which destroys things, um, when it, when it is spilled out, um, but that it is certainly true that that concept of light, you know, or metaphor or whatever it is, um, of light as liquid, is much more prominent in the Book of Boss tales. Mm-hmm. Um, we see a lot, lot more of that idea of of light being sort of gathered and poured out. Um, so, I mean, I don't know that we have to go with an actual sort of liquid representation. We sort of we could, I suppose but 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 i but i'm just thinking
0: that we're not we're not this this idea of sort of ubiquitous ambient light um um uh is not we're not just making this up out of nowhere that that, no. that actually this this idea there sort of it's grounded in the actual in the text that Tolkien may have been thinking something similar.
1: Sort of, I'm not sure I'd go so far as that. <laughs> I definitely wouldn't go so far as saying I'm sure Tolkien was thinking something similar. He may not have done. Um, but again, see, this is one of the things which is, and we, we you know we can't be shy about this. This is one of the things that is the natural result of doing this project, right? Of one of the cool, fun things about the Silmarillion film project is that it makes you think through details that you don't do, details that Tolkien himself didn't think through. That first page, I mean, it's, if you think about it, in a sense, most of the entire, we've done like four, you know, five episodes basically on page one of the Quintus <laughs> you know? I mean, the, essentially, that's kind of what we do, which means, obviously, we're expanding a lot. There's a lot of things that we have to fill in. He doesn't say that much about what happens in Middle-earth before the lamps are lit. But although we get all of this language at the end of the uh, uh, the Inulindalei, um, you know, and I'm thinking about uh, you know all of that. Um, you know, uh, uh, they built lands, and Melkor destroyed them. Valleys they delved, and Melkor raised them up. Mountains they carved, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Th- th- that stuff, right? So we have this idea of as the land, the 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 taking shape of the land takes quite some time. Um, and yet when we get to the Quenta, we don't really have anything described as happening before the lamps are lit. And yet it's pretty clear that the basic carving of valleys or carving of mountains and hollowing of valleys has already more or less finished happening by that point. Right. Um, So, but again, but the point is Tolkien didn't ever write that out in the terms in which we're doing it. Right. I mean, he doesn't have stories that really doesn't narrate stories from that time. Um, He never really, he never really made the pre-lamps world, as fully realized, it seems within his own imagination, as the world in which he tells the rest of the stories. You know, um, it's a it's 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 merely a kind of mythic backdrop, which is fine, which works well. Again, I'm not saying this to I'm not I'm not saying that to, Tolkien did a bad job. I'm just saying that this wasn't you know realizing. Um, fleshing that that particular world out to this extent wasn't part of his project, um, but it is part of this project, and that's kind of fun. So this is why we can't be afraid to um, to sort of go off here, um, right? 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 Uh, so yeah. Anyway,
0: um, well, I really, I I really like this idea of. Um, I like this idea of the, the the purpose of the lamps being to, in some sense to to gather up all this light um, that's just out there in the wild, free and all that, and like sort of kind of kind of gather it up and, and systematize it, put it in this lamp so we can more efficiently light certain regions, you know and, and of course, they're building the lamp. Where they are, where they are in That's Valinor. A... So Valinor is going to well, get well. It's not Valinor; light, it's isn't... in
1: Almoran. It's geographically oh, that, separate. Oh, right, from Almoran, that. Yes,
0: yeah. but it's still sort of like they're they're they are going to be the primary beneficiaries of this, and it's going to be sort of the outlying regions of of like Middle Earth and stuff that that will that will not benefit as much, and and that being sort of like this this kind of yet another sort of well-intentioned misstep, you know, like like the tension between they're they're down there to be stewards of Arda and to, and to make these kinds of decisions, but these decisions always are fraught. Like that there's, there's no such thing as like, like, you know, like building of the lamps seems like a really good idea, but it has consequences.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's true of
0: everything that they do leading up to bringing the children over.
1: And, and, and those consequences I think are not simple. I mean, like, so take for instance, when they bring the lights together and they make the lamp on the one hand, one of the consequences of concentrating all the light is, is darkness, right? So you leave a place. Mm-hmm. Like, now Utumno is in darkness, now. You know where it wasn't in darkness before, but now it's in complete darkness. Now Ungoliant has a place to go and hide in the darkness, and she is, in a sense, made stronger by having all of this darkness. But um, at the same time, I think we should have a scene where, like, you know, they dim the lamps and the stars come out for the first time. They see the stars because we, they had that ambient light thing going on everywhere which was constant and now mm-hmm. they see it's dark and they they see only by starlight which is which is much dimmer than the previous light had been but they see the beauty of the starry heavens for the first time so it's a good thing right but it's also a bad thing but or it could be or you know I, but but I think that exact kind of ambiguity right like as you say their choices have consequences um mm-hmm. and they don't always anticipate exactly what those consequences are going to be. And those consequences are uh, it, uh, great good comes from it. Also, great evil can come from it. Um, and sometimes both of those things from the same choices. Um, so I like that. I mean, I, I think that, that that seems to me to fit what we see, not only in the choices of the Valar, of course, but in in, in lots of people's choices, that seems to be that seem that feels to me like it's really kind of in touch with a lot of sort of some kind of deep talking themes yeah yeah. Yeah. I like that. Anyway. Okay. So the, it's as you see, for neither one of these topics, have we really succeeded in not going forward and, and talking, but that's okay. We've already laid a bunch of foundations for, uh, for further discussion on, uh, on today's episode. And, uh, and now we can kind of come get down to brass tacks on a lot of those things. But first, uh, let me, let me make one quick announcement. Um, I just wanted to thank everybody for your participation in our fundraising campaign. Um, It was a a wonderfully successful campaign. uh, We've raised about $37,000 now total towards the Signum University Annual Fund, which is really wonderful. Um, and, uh, that's been, that's been, that's been really great. So thanks to everybody who has participated in that. Um, if you haven't, and you would still like to, you know, certainly you, you still can, uh, contribute to the victim, uh uh, uh, annual fund. Um, uh, but I, I just wanted to thank everybody for their... Participation in that Um, one thing that I did one sort of new announcement that I have uh, for today um, is uh, uh, kind of an important one. Actually, Um, we are looking for um, new uh, sort of a a, we, we have some job openings at Signum. Um, And I, you may have heard me explain before about the Signum Work Study Program, where basically, you know, there are a lot of people who would love to audit our regular uh, semester classes, um, would even love perhaps to enroll in our master's degree program and take our courses for credit, but just don't have, you know, can't really spare the extra money. I mean, our tuition is really low, but, but still, you know, I mean, there's, it's, you know, it's still money and, and, and it's still hard, I know, for many people. Um, to be able to sort of find that in their budgets, but they, would, they might like to do it. Well, our work-study program enables you essentially to barter a little bit of your time and some of your skills and experience, uh, and uh, we will happily uh, give you tuition remission in exchange, uh, uh, essentially as a token of our gratitude uh, for your volunteer labor. Um, our work-study program has been wonderful. Our work-study students are basically really you know sort of the heart of our whole staff. Um, at Signum. So, um, you know, I just have, uh, have been uh, just absolutely delighted working with our work-study students to this point. Um, we have, um, we, so we, we do have, as I've said, some job openings. If you go to org slash jobs, um you can see the job openings we have i'll just i'll just sort of run through them and mention them now so that you can know what they are we're looking for people with social media experience um uh we're looking for and anybody who has uh web design and and web editing especially wordpress experience that would be really helpful um bookkeeping uh in particular anyone who has any uh experience with financial bookkeeping we don't need uh, an accountant though i wouldn 't say no to one um, but uh, I this it 's really a very basic data entry kind of position um. Uh, but that would be great. Um, anyone who has any experience with human resources uh, stuff would be awesome. Event planning, too. Um, writers and editors, we have lots of work for writers and editors, so if uh, if that's something that you do and that you enjoy doing, we can definitely find a place for you. Audio and video editing and production, that's a a, a significant need. There's been a sort of even with my own podcast, there's been a there's been a backlog that I need help uh, kind of getting through. Um, And we have a bunch of things that we're we have underway now where we really could use help in both audio and video editing um and also faculty support um just people with very basic sort of administrative assistant skills um to help uh you know if you've ever taken one of my courses or one of the Mythgard Academy courses um doing things like helping to prepare the 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 slides uh for lectures and um helping uh, just sort of generally helping faculty Bring things together uh, for for their classes. Um, that's something that would be really really handy. So um, those are all the kind of the general sort of skill groups and things that we need. If you don't, um, uh, you know, if you it's, if you don't have experience, but you sort of a general aptitude and willingness, we're very happy to kind of talk things over and see what we can work out. So um, if you're interested, please send an, an email to info at org. And uh, if you could mention work study in the subject line, that would be really handy. And we'll see what we can we'll see what we can do. We would love to connect with you and plug you in as part of the team. So uh, and again you can see the full list at signumuniversity.org slash jobs. Okay, and that's our one major announcement today. So let's get back now into officially talking about today's episode. So uh, today's episode, episode five um is uh th- there basically there are two subplots of this episode one is the the decision to make the lamp and the the lamps and the building of the lamps, and the other is the introduction of tolkis. This was the idea that we had in the middle of the last episode, which I absolutely fell in love with. you know we decided we weren't going to have we were going to have tolkas coming late, and this is the episode in which tolkas arrives um and we were kind of kicking around the idea of him you know we know that he is. Uh, he is marrying Nessa, that Nessa is his wife, and of course, in the book, it's at the wedding feast of Tolkas and Nessa uh, that the lamps get destroyed. So, if he's going to come in, he's got to come in, and if he's going to marry Nessa, he's 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 got to get busy pretty quick here because she's they've got to get married in the next episode. So, uh, th- this is what led us to be to be contemplating some kind of ma- Tolkas coming in uh, Tolkas rescue scenario. The combination of we need to introduce Tulkas and Nessa combined with um, we need to um, uh, uh, you know we wanted to retain some element of the Tulkas comes in and saves the day, which is how he's introduced uh, at the beginning of the Quenta. of course, he comes in and saves all of the Valar at the beginning um, uh, in in the published Silmarillion. But again, if we could if we could retain some kind of the that sort of rescue. Operation by Tolkis, that would be great. So, and we had also talked about the idea of having Ungoliant uh, be the one uh, from whom, uh, you know, wh- whom Tolkien is going to. So, you know, our question was if Tolkien comes in and, you know, saves people from what or whom is he going to save people since Melkor is still in theory uh, a good guy or still believes himself to be a good guy and the Valar still believe him to be a good guy um, and so it was the suggestion there. So, so the questions here, Tolkas and Nessa, how are we going to do this? Is this going to be a rescue? Is it going to be a rescue in what sense? Um, and and Ungoliant, how do we depict Ungoliant? What's she like exactly? Um, we talked about having her appear in 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 human form, not in spider form, and I still really like that idea. But what is she like? What kind of what kind of threat exactly is she going to be posing? Um, and then of course we have the 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 lamp construction. Uh, uh, subplot. Dave, which one do you want to talk first? We've been, having just been talking about the lights, do you want to carry on with the lamp construction thing, and then come back to Tolkis and Nessa, or do you want to go back to Tolkis and Nessa first? Well,
0: because we're, yeah, we were also talked about that. Ah, I don't know. Um, yeah, let's let's stay on the light thing.
1: Okay. Let's stay on the light thing. Um. All right. so... The lamps. Okay, so here's, here's, here's... I think the lamps should be Melkor's idea but I think that many of the valar should be really enthusiastic about it in particular Yavanna and Aulë I think that Yavanna is going to immediately you know she's going to be like oh yeah like you know this this is the kind of thing I've been kind of planning on some kind of you know you know Yvanna has a scene where she's like, okay, I, I, I wasn't going to complain, but like the lighting around here is really inadequate. And I was really kind of hoping for a little bit more because I had these like tree things in mind, and this is just not going to fly under this current lighting condition. So I'm really glad somebody finally spoke up about this problem. Um, of course I'm being sarcastic. That's not actually how her dialogue goes, but uh b- but that's the though jokingly expressed. I again I think that she she immediately sees the benefits and is in and is in, you know, basically says this was you know this is this is you know it is in the song, right? You know, it was it, it was in the music, like we, we need this kind of light. Um and I think that Aule is all about it too, because mm-hmm. I think the making of the lamps Aule is going to be excited about that, right? What does Aule like most? The act of making, right? He likes... So this kind of a challenge, like, hey, could you fashion these two, like, huge pillars with these lamps that will that will be able to hold in all the light? Um, these two lamps, which will be kind of like, um, you know, the prototypes of the Silmarils themselves, right? Where all of the light from the entire world is is focused within these, like, essentially sort of crystalline structures. And Aule like... All about that, right? I mean, he's going to be pumped about the just the the sort of the challenge, right? Um, so um, yeah, yeah, yes. um, uh, yeah, Lydia. Thank you, Lydia. Lydia, I'm glad you you like my sarcastic paraphrasing of the Valar dialogue. Um, for one thing, I'm really bad at dramatic dialogue, so I'm not even going to pretend, right? I'm not even going to fake it and try to like. This is why, like, I I don't think I would be a good screenwriter at all. Um. And, and of course, you know, this is how I, you know, this, I'm, so I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing their, their dialogue in the same sort of joking way in which I tend to paraphrase or summarize stories, you know, that have been written. I mean, you know, again, if you've listened to me for very long, you know, I do that kind of thing all the time. So please don't make them don't misunderstand and suspect that I'm actually wanting to make the Valar talk this way. Um, but anyway, okay. Um. So Yovana she's all in on the lamps idea, right? Auli he's excited about the lamps idea. Um do uh Manway can be all like oh, you know What do you think about Manway and Varda Dave? I mean we they have to weigh in on this, right? I mean we can't have them be non-factors in this question. Right.
0: <clears throat> on the question of uh building the lamp and that kind of thing. Um I don't know. Like, what what sort of reaction are you expecting them to have? Like, what do you think their perspective will be?
1: Well, see, it's tempting because on the one hand, I'm tempted to be like, ah, well, Manway and Varda are like they're wiser, right? So they kind yeah, of. So- they hear him so make any idea suggestion. brought to them by
0: Melkor, they're instantly going to be suspicious of?
1: Yeah, they're all like, oh, I don't know, this kind of stuff. But then again, that's not what we see in them. Not in Manway, right? No. Remember, Manway is the guy who, when Melkor comes back after being chained and he repents and he's like, no, seriously, I'm totally over being evil now. I just want to help. And Manway's like, okay. Um, oh, great. <laughs> that's great. I'm so glad you're now a pr- constructive member of society. So, I mean, uh, and... and uh, Tolkien even makes the point, I mean, the narrator in the published Silmarillion even makes the point that he doesn't get evil. He just doesn't get it. Um, so having Manway be kind of naive, I don't want to make him, I mean, I, I would want to make sure that we don't make Manway look like a simp, right? I mean, he can't look like a, a, an idiot and I, I don't want to yeah. undermine Manway. Um, well,
0: and and I think at this point, at this point, I, I I think it's okay. At this point, like like it, it, it's there's really no reason to suspect Melkor. No, and and in and you know the way we're setting this up with Melkor sort of proposing this idea of building the lamps, this isn't a bad idea in and of itself. I know we've been sitting here criticizing it, but that's like a nuanced read of it, right? Like nowhere in the in the published Sumerian is there any indication or hint from the narrator or anywhere else that this is actually a bad idea.
1: Right. Right.
0: So, so I don't think I'm not too concerned about them looking looking like they've been duped because because I don't think it's, you know, like I mean, if it's a good idea, it's a good idea, and it doesn't matter whether it's Melkor, the evil guy, bringing it, especially at a point where he hasn't really even revealed himself to be to be working against them. And maybe you know, and there's no, I guess there's really an opportunity to be pretty nuanced here, like. He doesn't actually need to be explicitly working against them when he comes and says, you should build a lamp. Maybe he actually thinks it's a pretty good
1: idea. Right. Yeah. No, this is where I think, thinking about Melkor's trajectory, I do think, you know, we don't want Melkor to be, like, secretly behind the scenes, being like, ah, they are falling for my evil plan. They will never suspect. (laughs) Like, that's, that's not how he is. I think he thinks it's a good idea. You know, I think that he... The conflict, I think, at this point, the conflict between them is not he's really evil and attempting to undermine them. The problem is he thinks that he should be the king, and that they should all obey him. This and and it's not even like he's trying to take over; like he assumes that's what's gonna that's how it's gonna go down, right? You know, yeah. it's like naturally he comes to Almoran. They are they all are gonna like him. He's gonna show them his superior power and wisdom. They're obviously going to defer to him. They are going to glorify him and recognize. Remember, his fault. The thing that drove Melkor, like what he did wrong in the music, was trying to, 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 to bring more glory to his part in the music, right? And that, I think, is what we need to show him doing here. Again, it's not that he had evil music or something. It's just that he strove to give more, to bring more glory to his part of the song. So it's the attitude that he expects other people to have with him, which is going to be sort of the jarring thing. But that doesn't have to be visible right away, especially yeah. since at the beginning, the resolution of episode four is that, you know, like the, he comes and that we've got this, you know, the elemental conflict and the extremes of heat and cold and all of the fellow are like, oh, my gosh, this is horrible. And then he comes in and he's like, actually, no, it's awesome. Right. And then at the end, they're all like, oh, yeah, it's awesome. So Melkor is in a happy place at the end of episode four because everybody's like, yeah, actually, Melkor is right. This stuff is awesome. Look at all this awesome stuff that Melkor is doing. And he's like, that's right. It is awesome. And so am I. And I'm glad you see that. right?" So he's happy because everybody sees how awesome he is and how awesome are the, the, the effects of his power. And so now he takes the next step and he's like, hey, I've got a great idea. Let's make lamps. Right. Let's bring all the light together. And of course, we can see the foreshadowing of this. Right. This is the first impulse of him to hoard that light altogether. Right. But that doesn't. But the rest of the Valar don't see it that way. You know, instead, they're just like, oh, yeah. And Yavanna's again, she's all about it. And Ale's like, this will be a great, fun project and uh and and also all the valar are carrying on being like wow this is awesome you know uh, you know melkor is really great he's he's the best and he thinks he's the best and everything we don't really get to conflict yet but where the yep. the conflict that we're setting up comes in not when you know melkor in episode 6 rips off his mask and starts cackling and says you've fallen from my maniacal plot but rather when he Is basically sort of expecting a level of adulation for himself, expecting a a level even of worship for himself, um, expecting a kind of authority and sovereignty and recognition that they don't give him. Um, And, you know, and, and and even a kind of ownership. Right. Like he sees the lamps. Those are his. Right. They were his idea. He's gathered all the light together and he owns it. Right. Mm-hmm. But I, they're not going to, and, and, and again, I think this is just like the the, the other Valar don't even suspect because they don't think that way, right? Um, yeah. So it would never even cross their minds that in him saying, hey, let's, dr- let's draw the light together and encase it in these crystals, that he's kind of thinking like, because that's a convenient carrying package for me to be able to like take the light and go home when I want you to. to right? it off. <laughs> like he's thinking of this as like a kind of an acquisition for himself personally. These are his lamps, right? He owns them, kind of like he owns Olivarda, um, and I think what 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 things come down to in the next episode is going to be that when that becomes more clear, when they see um, when they see that like he thinks that he actually owns these things and that he has some kind of actual um, uh, sort of proprietary right over the light, over the lamps, over over Almorin, over even themselves, and that's where we first get uneasiness coming in but I don't even think we need to go there in this episode Um in fact if anything everyone's appreciating him more like what's happening in the other subplot that is Ungoliant you know who takes light and turns it into darkness like that's obviously bad right and she's the obvious threat whereas Melkor he's Mr. Illumination right yeah he's the happy good light guy Um yeah that's true and in fact, we could even have the lighting of the lamps coincide with the rescue so that it's like, he's instrumental in, 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 in They helping. turn on
0: the, turn on the lamp to help, uh, uh, like locate Nessa.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's all, uh, it's all good. It's all, it's all happy though. Again, we need to, we need to, you know, make sure that we're setting it up. I mean, I think that we can, and, and of course we need to have, the naysayers are at the very least the uncomfortable people, and I think they can be the same. I, Olmo seems to me again the logical person to be kind of apart from all of this, and Varda. I think I think uh, I think Olmo should counsel against it, um, and Varda should be uncomfortable.
0: Hmm. <sighs> Ulmo, I, I like the it. idea that uomo- counsels against it, since he seems to be like the sort of the um, the dissenting voice on a lot of these dubious decisions. Exactly. So what would be what's his what's his reasoning here? They're they're not they're not so Varda's vaguely uncomfortable with it just because she she I I think alone or sort of yeah I guess alone out of the Valar is the one who really has has like you know has some experience of Melkor being like a creepy dude right.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, though, I mean, this is the issue. This was the issue at the beginning of, uh, well, last episode, episode four. They were all there mm-hmm. for the music. They all heard the discord, right? So, um, and right. presumably they all heard Louvatar dressing him down at the end of it, um, but they don't understand. I mean, this is another thing that's, I think that's really important that people don't that people often don't think through. It's tempting to think of the Valar as this, like, these all-wise, practically all-knowing people. Remember, the initial depiction of the Valar emphasized not their wisdom, but their limitations of understanding. They were only given, like, this one part of the mind of Iluvatar, and they grew but slowly in the comprehension of the rest of it. Um, So their understanding is really limited, so, when, mm. when, um, and even coming back to the, the question of Manway not getting evil and being duped by Melkor later on, they don't, they're not, they don't have the kind of wisdom that experience of evil brings. Right. They're innocent. In some ways, so like they 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 will have perceived the discord. Like they will have gotten the fact that that wasn't what happened there. Things didn't quite go according to plan, and that that uh, that that discord was pretty uncomfortable. Um, but they don't understand what was going on with Melkor. They don't understand like the, the you know what happened and why he did what he did and what's going. So when he comes in and says the stuff that he said in the last episode. Um, I think, you know, that's, they, it's okay for them to be a little bit clueless because they're still kind of starting out in this whole business, right? right? Um right. But Varda has experience with him. And that's where we come back to episode three. Um, you know, yeah. the conversations that Varda had with, with Melkor before, Um So she's uneasy, because she knows him. She's like the only one who suspects that there might be some other motivation involved with this whole hoarding of light thing, right? You know, that she recognizes the benefits, and, you know, she doesn't want to rain on Yovana's parade or anything, but you know, and and again, she, she sees, yes, the building of the lamps is a good thing, but his Melkor's motivations for building the lamps might not actually be pure. There might be a a danger sign. Maybe she tries to explain it to Manway. I don't know, um, but I think that she should see that and be worried about it. Olmo should think the lamps are a bad idea. Um, though of course, casting Olmo as the wet blanket is a little too easy, right? But uh, you know, anyway. Um, but
0: yeah. so Olmo. But Olmo's opposition is not. It, it has less to do with Melkor, more just he's just suspicious of the idea.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and, and sensibly, because there are are arguments to be made against it, right? Um, You know, to say like, okay, yeah, having light concentrated here sounds great. And I'm sure that in the greater Almerian region, it's going to be lovely. But what about the rest of of Arda, right? What about the, you know, lamps on high pillars? Okay, the pillars can be really high, but they're still going to be, you know, we are supposed to be masters of all of Arda, not just this bit of it. Um, and if we concentrate the light here, we are by necessity going to be depriving other places of light. Shall we lose, forget that, those places entirely? That's, of course, Olmo's big thing, right? Olmo is the one who doesn't turn his back on the. He's the one who keeps all of you know of Arda in mind. He's the one who keeps coming back to Middle Earth and hanging out with the children of Iluvatar, um, even you know later on in in the First Age. So that seems to me. Uh, that seems to me very fitting, um, you know, establishing that particular theme where Omo is, he's like the Democrat, right? Not in the modern American party sense, right? But he's the one, you know, like thinking about the, um, in as much as the, uh, you could characterize the Valar's perspective as a fundamentally aristocratic one, right? Yes. Um, you know, the, 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 they're, they're instituting like a, a sort of a hierarchy of privilege, Right? Some places will have lots of light, other places will have very much less. That's okay. And you can make an argument for that, right? Sure. Whereas Omo says, hey, you know, everybody having the same amount and everybody having some is actually kind of better. Okay. You know? Yes. Either one could kind of work. There are definitely you know and again, I, I think the great thing in that discussion is we can have it be clear that there's no there's no obvious answer. You know, it's not The you know, when when they decide to make the lamps, it's not a like you know, a a moment where we're trying to make the audience at home be like, No, don't do it, it's obviously the wrong answer, right? It's it's not obvious, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Philip is uh, wondering if we should get uh, some turmoil between Ulmo and Manway here, um, uh with the lights being up in the air um and uh the lights not penetrating the water the, the the light of the lamps not penetrating the waters and I don't know. I mean I don't think we want conflict between them. Um but um but you know, dissension. They don't agree. Um now, by the way, um I think we need to follow through with the idea that we had several episodes ago that this should be the episode also in which we introduce Melkor and Sauron to each other. Okay. Um, or well, and, and we didn't officially rule on this. So there is a place and it's not even I don't even think it happens in any of Tolkien's published writings. I think it's in one of the one of the name lists. Uh, in his linguistic papers, um, when he gives Sauron that name, Myron, his he gives that that original name for Sauron before he was corrupted, M A I R O N. Yes. Yeah. Um, as I recall, that isn't anywhere in any of the published. I don't think that has ever appeared in print. Um, as far as I'm recall, I mean, if I'm forgetting, you know, somebody remind me, but. I think that's just purely in his linguistic papers in, in those name and word lists that he was so very fond of making. Um, we can do that now it's, it would be kind of, it would make for a kind of a cool reveal, of course, because if we introduce this guy as Sauron from the beginning, you know, everybody is going to be like, "Oh no, it's the evil guy. it would be kind of fun to have that be a reveal later on that this guy is actually mm-hmm. Sauron. And so having the name gives us an obvious kind of out, but um, yeah. But Myron can be sort of the chief of the people of Aule who's working on the lamps project.
0: Oh, I like it.
1: Ooh, I've got it. It's Myron like the head can head foreman. Yeah, he's the foreman of the project. Myron can be the guy who makes the crystals that contain the light at the top of the lamp. And so I like we have it. like a foreshadowing of the making of the Rings of Power later on, and as well as a foreshadowing of the Silmarils. Um, yep. Yeah. Oh, I like that. And so, and 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 that's why, of course, we know how much how much Melkor likes shiny things, right? So that can be the first thing uh, that kind of brings Sauron to his attention, or excuse me, Myron to his attention, right? Or he's like. Hey, I, I want to. I I, I, I want to meet the chap that made the big shiny things. That was awesome, right? You know. Yeah. This guy and I can work together because the two of them would have to work together, right? I would think that it would actually be the power of Melkor that brings the light together. Maybe he and Varda work together. That'd be kind of sweet. You know, he and Varda work together to to gather the light. But the but the the lamps should be hot. I mean, they, they should be fiery. There should be you know the 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 light can be like liquid but also like fire um, as it's contained, as it's brought, you know, concentrated, brought together and and put within the lamps. Um, So he and Myron would be working closely together there. Yeah. 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 And yeah, Nick Palazzo is suggesting a, a sort of a subplot where we've got like Sauron kind of thinking outside the box and Aole reining him in. I really like that idea. I'm wondering if we couldn't incorporate that later. I don't want to overload this particular subplot with extra subplots. Maybe we right. just, you know, introduce Myron and connect the two of them together here and then we can develop Myron's character a little bit later on, um
0: yeah, I think I think at this point, I think at this point you just want the like like the Easter egg hint, like just yes. sort of you know, oh hey, who built these who you know who who constructed the the light concentrating crystals at the top? Oh, that's Myron, yeah, just like a nod to the audience. Uh, you know, and and maybe we don't even we don't necessarily even need to show the meeting on screen. Just have right. Melkor say, "Well, I'm going to track him down and have a chat a little bit." Later.
1: <laughs> right? Exactly. Right. Yeah, I, I gotta, I gotta, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. Uh, I'm gonna go um, uh, you know, check out his profile. Absolutely. Um, uh, so, anyway, yeah, yeah. So, so no, I, I think I think that that's good. Though uh, the idea just occurred to me. Maybe we should have Sauron be involved in the making of the dwarves as well. Peripherally oh. He doesn't actually make them, of course. I mean that has to be Aule. But um, um Anyway, maybe uh maybe he um But he
0: But yeah, I like that. He's he's he participates um or at least is aware of So maybe yeah, maybe actually hey maybe he's not directly involved in making the dwarves but maybe he finds out about it and agrees to keep it a secret
1: or encourages him right, cuz remember, remember yeah. it's it this is the, you know it's this is very close to aulë falling i mean this is a this is a wrong thing that aulë does and i'm not yep. saying that you know we don't necessarily depict sauron as like you know the serpent in the garden of eden here you know we don't he doesn't have to be tempting aulë to do it but you know Kind of collaborating with him. I mean, he should be a major member of Aule's retinue. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's um, um, let's let's uh, yeah, Kimber. Exactly. I I do want to make sure that Aule's fall or near fall should be his own. I don't want it to be like he was duped by Sauron. Yeah, absolutely not. Um, but and it, we'll we'll think more about this later. We're going to have a whole episode on Aule and the dwarves um in the second half of the season. So we'll, we'll 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 have plenty more time to think about this. But I'm I'm thinking Sauron Myron, Sauron Myron should still be around. And again, that's M A I R O N so you can start picturing him as that um and the question of when he changes his name and when he comes over that will be really interesting. I don't know. I'm kind of tempted to leave him in Valinor for a while, right? As like a mole essentially. Yeah. Because um, we don't see him acting in Middle Earth, I mean, he doesn't actually enter the stories for a long time until like the Baron and Luthian story. I mean, I, we don't really get anything from Sauron over there, so maybe he stays in in uh, um maybe he stays in 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 uh, uh, in Valinor as a mole. Anyway,
0: yeah, play the play the long game with him. Maybe he 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 doesn't leave until um, say the. Like the theft of the Silmarils or something,
1: right? Right. Possibly even after. Um, yeah. Possibly even after. But we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. N- n- not. Not. Not for a while. In any case. Okay. So let's shift then to Tolkas and Nessa. Um. Let me. All right. Let me address one thing uh, that I've been thinking about since our last episode. A lot of people were really resistant and remain really resistant to the idea of having a stereotypical damsel in distress situation where we have... Understandably so. Understandably so. But I have a general caution here. This is difficult. We have to remember that with the Valar, we are not by necessity dealing with archetypes. And I don't think that we can categorically give that over or pretend that we're not. Or rather, let me say this another way to say, if we are too resistant to sort of deep and traditional archetypes, there's going to be a serious cost to that. And we need to count that cost really carefully before we mm-hmm. start deviating from from things that, that from archetypes which have become stereotypes and cliches. We can resist stereotypes and cliches. Now, a stereotype is not an archetype. Those are not the same thing. And it's good to resist stereotype. But I think we have to make, we have to be very careful that in doing so we're not resisting archetype. And the example I would give of this is Aragorn in the Lord of the Rings films. One of the things that they did in the Lord of the Rings movies was let's take these characters down from their archetypal status and let's bring them down close. Let's, let's, let's make them something more like something that we would like to meet and something that we can relate to more as, you know, and in doing so they wrecked a bunch of characters. Um, And, Uh, They wrecked Faramir. They wrecked Aragorn. Um, Mm -hmm. There are things that you can say in defense of Aragorn. There are far fewer things you can say in defense of Faramir. But one of the things clearly that Tolkien does, one of the things that makes Tolkien's story so powerful is how he does deal in in mythic archetypes. And when we're talking about the Valar, we're talking about an entirely new layer, new level. Of archetypal significance, um, there is a there's a part of me that wants to say. Nessa should be, in fact, a damsel in. De- the idea that damsels in distress have become cliché, should be because Nessa was a damsel in distress. Like that archetype right. comes from somewhere, and uh, and 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 I don't think we we so we have to be careful in thinking. Here here is where I would basically say a lot of the traditional modern thinking about creative enterprise. That is modern storytellers, whether it be in in in, in a visual medium or in a or in a, a verbal medium, modern storytellers are obsessed with doing things new. Oh, we can't just go over the same ground everybody's been doing, right? We've got to you've got to make a new story. Um I say this is a modern preoccupation because it, this was not a this is not a traditional idea. This is a modern fixation, um, the idea of making something new and being creative in the way in which we use that word. Um, this was not a thing for most of like the history of human storytelling. Um, the idea that something which is You know, a sort of a rehashing or a recapitulation of traditional ideas that that is in some sense an inferior story um, to one which tells something new. That idea is not only would not only be alien, I think that moreover, the, you know, a, a storyteller from an older epic would say, look, you're kidding yourself if you think you're coming up with something new. You can do you can do a different spin on something. You can do a different twist on something, but you're not actually doing anything new. These archetypes exist, and they're gonna be active despite the fact that you are shifting the terms a little bit around. All you're doing is just playing with superficial stuff. Um, the stories are the great stories are still the great stories, and people want like those stories because those stories are powerful, not because you are so such a genius you came up with something nobody had ever thought of before. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I'm getting onto a a much broader rant here, but I think we have to be careful because I think that that impulse to say, Oh, we can't just have it be like a cliched thing. It's important for us to keep that in mind, but I don't think we can be slaves to that. I think in fact, there are going to be moments where it's important for us to resist that impulse because in established the Valar are the, they're like the embodiment of the archetypes. Um, And, so I I I we have to be careful, I think, um in this way. So uh anyway, I'm um I I, I this is um the be to oh, Hang on a sec second. I'm I'm losing you some I'm, I'm I'm getting your, your audio garbled there, Dave. Oh, Am I losing your audio here? Uh oh. I see it. Dave, jump in when you come back. I'm not hearing you now. Jump in and I'll let you know when I hear you. In the meantime, oh I I'm back. Oh, oh you're back. Okay, there you are, good.
0: Yeah, I don't I don't know what happened. I dropped out there for a second. Yeah yeah. Very bizarre. Yeah. Um, um. So where were we?
1: <laughs> okay. Anyway, we're. So I had finished my rant about archetypes and cliches yeah. and being cautious about. Them. I
0: I attempted to say that at a minimum we shouldn't we shouldn't be reflexive in we shouldn't be reflexive in trying to cor- avoid stereotypes or correct stereotypes. Um, we shouldn't be we shouldn't identify something that resembles what we would consider a stereotype that is in fact an archetype and immediately try to correct it.
1: Right. Right, because um, here's, let me, let me make a defense of, or rather, let, let me es- es- essentially make an argument in favor of the damsel in distress idea. I'm not saying that this is how it has to be done. There are arguments that can be made against this, like as the, that depicting Nessa and Tolkien's relationship as not this way. There are definitely arguments for that. But here's my argument for it the basic mythic element here, what I think would be really fun, is to be essentially doing a version, the archetypal version of the Persephone myth. We know very little about Nessa. Um, We know some about Nessa. I mean, I could read you in about 30 seconds all that there is, all that we know about Nessa. Um, But... um, uh, and I will admit, the one thing I will admit is that she's not absolutely the perfect candidate among the Valar for this role. But she is, in my mind, like the second most perfect candidate for this role. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, is, is essentially the role of Persephone. What I would love to see, the, 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 the storyline that I, find, when I think about this, that I find really compelling is the storyline of corrupted innocence. That we depict Nessa. As the one of, of of childlike innocence, like the images, and 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 I'm I'm talking about the myth the myth of Persephone, and sort of assuming everybody knows what I'm talking about. Perhaps I shouldn't make that assumption so totally rashly. Um, but the you know the myth of Persephone, having you know the 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 daughter of the goddess Ceres. Um, who is wandering about collecting flowers in the field um, is almost always this picture of innocence. She's almost always depicted as quite young. I mean, she's like barely pubescent in most of the sort of visual representations of the stories. Um, she is, uh, she is, a, a, you know, of you know, beauty and childlike innocence. And Hades, the god of the underworld, sees her, desires her, comes up from the underworld, and draws her down into darkness. Um, where she is then bargained for. And of course we got the business with the pomegranate seeds and stuff like that. And, uh, and, and I'm not, it's not that element. It's the, it's the, 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 the image of, of, you know, what is traditionally called the rape of Persephone that I'm thinking of. Um, the creature who lives in darkness, perceiving the, 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 the innocent, uh, the, the innocence and loveliness of the Persephone figure, desiring to acquire it and to bring it down into darkness itself. So I'm th- here. I'm thinking of, in, in thinking of with Ungoliant and Nessa, you'll notice I'm not thinking about this primarily in sexual terms, as the story is sexualized uh, in the mm-hmm. Greco-Roman tradition, and I'm not. I'm not talking about it that way, but mm-hmm. with the idea of Nessa as innocence in threat of being corrupted. Because going back to that very first discussion we had about how can the Valar be injured and what kind of drama is there, I love the way that that story can potentially serve as a kind of metaphor for everything that's happening right now. Like, right now, the innocence, of, the innocence and harmony of the first dwelling of the Valar is being threatened. They don't realize it yet. But Melkor's presence within them is a threat to it. And the way in which Nessa as the innocent maiden wandering in the in the new in the new sprung fields collecting flowers and then seized and taken in and tormented and sort of corrupted, you know, with a desire to corrupt her and draw her into darkness and just, you know, sort of suck her dry in the ungoliant way. Um that is you know, the way that that can sort of serve as a parallel to the larger story, as we see in the in the other subplot of the episode, Melkor saying, "Hey, let's build these lamps," and everybody else saying, "Yeah, the lamps. That sounds awesome. That would really be awesome." Um, but like, there is there is there is danger here. You know, the innocence uh, of of the of the Valar is 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 under threat, and I love the idea. Um, I love the idea of that particular archetype coming in, because it seems to me, I mean, this is about season one is ultimately about the loss of innocence, in a sense, um, the valor themselves losing their innocence and being confronted with the fact, recognizing the fact that they do, they are going to have to fight. I mean, we've, we've talked about that all along as sort of the ultimate destination of season one, when the, the, the tragedy um, that kind of concludes season one is not loss in battle. They win the battle, but the fact that they have to go to war um, and that the world is torn by that war. That's the, that's the tragedy at the end. Um, so it's victory, but it's now victory on, a, on, on terms that they were hoping they would never have to embrace in the first place. Um so planting the seed for that, that's why, that's, I think, what was kind of lurking at the bottom of my suggestion when I was talking about it in Damsel in Distress terms. Um, that was what was at the heart of it. Now, do we want to make Nessa more active? There are arguments from within the text to make Nessa not just be a little wilting flower. Um, Here's what we know of Nessa. His spouse is Nessa, the sister of Oromei, and she also is lithe and fleet-footed, deer she loves, and they follow her train whenever she goes in the wild, but she can outrun them, swift as an arrow with a wind in her hair. In dancing she delights, and she dances in Valimar on lawns of never-fading green. She's a dancer, she's fast, she's associated with deer, and she is the sister of Oromei. That's what we know about her. Um, mm-hmm. So she does not have to be. Now I, I was saying she's not the perfect candidate for the Persephone role among the the Valar. I would actually uh, uh, nominate Este, the gentle healer of hurts and of weariness, as the 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 the, the, the number one. Um, uh, uh, um, uh, she's the spouse of Irmo of Lorien. Um, she's the one I would primarily put forward as like the perfect Persephone figure um, as she is just associated with, uh, you know, with gentleness and, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and, and healing and things like that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, but, 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 but in my mind, Nessa is a, is a, a very, is an, an excellent candidate. <clears throat> um, she doesn't have to be a wuss, you know, she doesn't have to be, you know, acting in, you know, like stereotypical damsel in delight, d- damsel in distress ways. Um, I, But at the same time, I don't think that I. Um, so, yeah, we don't have to have her just like swooning and, and saying like, oh, somebody, please rescue me. But but I want her to be, in a sense, a damsel in distress, doggone it. Um, and I am resistant to the idea of, of like, transforming her into... Um,
0: and like a femme fatale action hero? Femme who, fatale action Tulkas, hero, yes. shows up to rescue her and she's already subdued and gulliant.
1: Right, exactly, yes. To that, I am resistant. Um, and again, I am resistant to it because... I like archetypalites like thematically, mythically. That doesn't seem to me to work. It certainly doesn't seem to me to fit in Tolkien's world. Um, Mm -hmm. Anybody who thinks that females in Tolkien are weak are not paying attention. Females might be few, but they are not weak. They are definitely not weak. Um. But that's not the kind of strength that women have, th- that females have, in Tolkien's world. Um, I uh, anyway. So I, I uh, again, here's where I want to resist. Just saying, let's do something like let's make her strong in a way that. I mean, this seems to me basically a kind of a modern knee-jerk reaction. Um, the modern reaction against weak female characters tends to be, let's make the women, you know, like, let's, let's make the female lead physically, you know, at least as physically tough as the male lead.
0: Right. right. So it's taking, it's taking sort of, you know, uh, there is, it, it's kind of interesting because it is, it does achieve a certain kind of, of, like, equality, like it attacks a stereotype from one angle of like, you know, well, women aren't helpless, they can rescue themselves, but it does so in a way that sort of, that that still embraces the, the stereotypes about what is strength for example yes like the only way to be self the only way to be independent self-reliant strong etc is to be able to is to be able to like beat somebody up for example yeah
1: which yeah.
0: is which is which is you know sort of superficially overturning some stereotypes but but reaffirming kind of the underlying value, the values that underlie those stereotypes, like that the only way to be strong is to be basically like a man.
1: Exactly. Exactly. That's the thing that that annoys me about the sort of counter stereotypes um, in so much modern TV and stuff. Right. Like that. If in order for the women to be depicted as strong and to have value, they have to be able to outman the men. Right. They, they can't mm-hmm. be they can't just be strong in a different way. Um, and, and that bothers me really from a, from a, from a gender perspective, but, um, okay. Um, let's now Lincoln Alpern has a very sensible, um, well, let me, a couple comments from, from, from. Uh, our listeners here Um, David Baxter says uh, a lot of the issue with the damsel in distress, at least in what I'm seeing is about how she is an object to be fought over by both the hero and the villain agreed. Absolutely. Uh, And that is where I think the whole thing kind of breaks down and where I, I would absolutely think if, if she is merely an object, an object first of desire in some sense or other to the villain, and then an object of desire to the hero, and she is reclaimed from the villain by the hero and awarded to the hero as a prize, yes, that's undesirable. Um, and I would think that putting any of the Valar in that position would be kind of horrible. Uh, so I absolutely agree with that. Um, uh, and uh, Lincoln, uh, Lincoln Alpern says... Um, He says, so far I'm not hearing Nessa as being depicted as Talcas's equal in any sense, um, which I had said last time was necessary. Um, Okay. Agreed. Agreed. But I, I haven't said anything, in a sense, I haven't said anything sort of positive about her yet. That is, the main thing I've said is that I love the idea of the Persephone myth, of invoking the Persephone myth, of having her be innocent, having her be a sort of an image, a metaphor even of the innocence of the Valar as a whole. But that doesn't mean that she has to be weak. In fact, she cannot be weak. She's a Valar for crying out She's a Valar for crying out loud. She can't be weak. Um, so... Um, So let me think about how this actually works in in general. Like in, so far, I haven't actually said anything about the details of how this would go down. All I've been doing is sort of talking about bigger mm-hmm. thematic, archetypal issues,
0: right? Right.
1: Um, why I don't want her to be to cast her in like an Amazonian role. Um. But but it's going to be hard. Because, you know, Lincoln, coming back to your point about the need for her to be his equal. She needs to be his equal. That doesn't mean she has to be just like him. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that she needs to match him on his grounds. To say she is his equal doesn't mean she has to be, like, as strong as he is. That she has to kick as much butt as he does. Um she can be his equal and have strengths which are different than his. Um, she, uh, um, And the thing is, you're
0: you're stepping very carefully, Corey. I am
1: stepping very carefully because it's very, it's very difficult because in, in certain, in certain kinds of scenes as well, that is like, if we're talking about an action sequence, right? Mm -hmm. It's hard to, if, if she is not physically strong. Or if her strength does not manifest itself in that way, you know, if the strength of her person does not manifest itself in that way, then mm-hmm. when it comes to fighting, she's going to look weak. There's no way around that. Yep. yep. Um, but I and, would say that the and those are
0: I'm... the, those things are, are, those are the things that tend to pop on screen that people sort of like that resonate with us.
1: Right. You know, that's, exactly. that's,
0: that's how we tend to think of strength and weakness.
1: Exactly. Um, but I don't want physical strength, by which I mean not only just muscle power, of course, but, you know, that kind of general physical competence and fighting ability. I don't want, I don't, I don't, I think it's important that we not accept that as the measure of the strength of a character. Um, as is too often the case. Um, so the way to make to show because it they can be their strengths can be should be really complementary. Um yeah, yeah. Lincoln, I hear that you're saying that they should be their strengths should be different. But what I'm not hearing is how that should be manifested. Um having them, having her fight alongside Tolkis I, there are ways in which I like it and it could be okay. I'm not categorically against it. Um, I mean, I agree. I, I, I've seen the discussion about, about fighting and dancing. And I certainly agree. I, you know, Karita makes excellent points about it. as, as someone who is herself, both a dancer and a martial artist. I totally, I totally get that Karita. I think you're absolutely right about sort of the, this, and, and we could go in that direction. You know, we could, we could make, uh, the two of them, being, the, being that dancing is the thing that Nessa is associated with, and therefore that kind of, of grace of physical movement, it would be really easy to translate her into like a ninja combatant, and it would work. We could absolutely do that. Um, I don't love the idea, though, because I feel like it just sort of makes them too much alike. Um It could work, but you know. But you know, Lincoln, you're saying you know they'd be strong in different ways. Well, I think what I'm saying is it's not sufficiently. I would love to see them be strong in in more in ways that are more different than that. It's not just about style of fighting or anything. It's that her strengths of character, her power, should be in something else. Cheryl Cardoza says her strength is in her artistry. That's more like what I'm talking about Um, when I say that her strengths are fundamentally different. um, uh, Yeah, uh, Mark Ingram says, what if her battle with Ungoliant is more like the battle between Gandalf and Sauron in the Hobbit movie? Um, Yes, that is to say that she's fighting, she can fight Ungoliant in non- um, in non-physical ways. Um, yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, it's, you know, Mark is thinking, especially with, with Ungoliant being darkness, especially since, as I was saying, and as you know, we brought this up way back at the very beginning, I think that the conflict, um, the ultimate drama about this is not like, is Nessa going to be killed or not, and her needing to be physically rescued from physical peril? That's not the point. The point, And again, this is why I really like the idea of her representing uncorrupted innocence, which is under threat of being corrupted. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the, uh, it's the, the sort of the innocent beauty of her artistry and of her dance, it really, that, that that's how she fights, by turning away from darkness, by refusing to be corrupted, by overcoming suffering. Um. That's yeah, that, how she's uh, gonna uh, win. That's kind
0: of, kind of, sort of. That's kind of, sort of, what I was uh, thinking or pondering here. Like, what <clears throat> if the idea is that she doesn't battle? You know, like she she can be sort of a representation of the idea that the uh, that the way to battle darkness isn't just um by physically fighting it.
1: Yes.
0: But but it's by but it could also it could just simply be by resisting it and refusing it.
1: Yes, exactly. By, so
0: so by Ungoliant to... hauls her off um, and is attempting to sort of subdue her and corrupt her. But, you know, she's not trying to escape or fight off Ungoliant, but she is resisting the attempts to corrupt her. Yes. So so she kind of permits herself to be actually captured, but she doesn't, She, you know, she's not like physically, she's not doing ninja moves to try and escape, but she is like resisting the attempt to corrupt her maybe much more effectively than than another character might by actually fighting.
1: Right. Now, of course, in saying it this way, we're now boxing ourselves into the opposite corner of not leaving much opportunity for Tolkien to come to anybody's rescue in any real sense. Um, mm-hmm. But, but why not do both? That is to say, she can resist morally, but she can show her moral strength. Um she can sort of, you know, she can adhere to purity, which leads us to the mm-hmm. question which we haven't really answered of how exactly is Ungoliant trying to corrupt her? Um which we haven't really talked about at all. Um but um By the way, I do
0: like um I like Trish's. I don't know if you noticed Trish's commenting in the question. Oh
1: yeah, Tr- Trish is able to Trish's, stop in. Cool.
0: Yeah, I like her suggestion that this is a, an important aspect of this is that each of the the Valar have 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 roles and aspects. Yes. You know, like they they sort of have things that they do, and that a certain part of the and that their physical forms, their bodies and stuff, were chosen.
1: Yes.
0: That they chose them, and so so you know like like uh, um, maybe Nessa really doesn't really doesn't have sort of the right kind of physique to fight Ungoliant because of sort of her, her role in the, the sort of the larger, you know, in the, in the sort of bigger picture is one that leads her to, you know, choose a different type of body or something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. If she were, yeah, it's not that she doesn't, because I, mean, I mean, yes, anybody who is a, you know, and, Anyone who has the physique to be a dancer could theoretically be the you know you, you can apply you know uh, the physical strength and agility required to dance in order to hit people. Um, mm-hmm. That's true, but exactly you know Dave or you know as as as, as Trish is saying uh, with her uh, with her comments here. Um, mm-hmm. Had Nessa been interested in physical com in, in physical combat, had she been interested in being a ninja, well, she would have looked different, right? She would have she would have done it differently. Um, you know, the body that she has chosen, the manifestation that she has chosen, shows what that she, she's not into that. That's not what she does. It's not who she is. Um, and and I don't think it has to be who she is. So yeah, have, but but. This isn't to say, even though she can sort of morally resist, spiritually resist the temptation, the corruption of Ungoliant, um, that doesn't mean that she can't be overpowered. Ungoliant can still just overwhelm her physically, or rather we represent that by a physical overwhelming. And that's where Tolkien can save her. I like Cheryl's comment about how uh, um, uh, Cheryl says her moral strength needs the physical strength of Tolkys to rest, uh, to succeed in escaping. They're two parts of one whole. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, so and Lydia Potam has just said Tolkys can only rescue her if she keeps herself intact to rescue. So she resists, you know, so basically there's sort of two phases I would say perhaps of Ungoliant's assault on Nessa the first mm-hmm. is to capture her and attempt to corrupt her, and that Nessa resists and and she you know that that is the battle that Nessa wins. And then Ungoliant basically says, Okay, fine, then I'm going to consume you. Um, you know, if I can't if I can't bring you over to be my partner, then I will then I will um I will consume you. Yeah, then
0: I'll- and I'll just physically destroy you.
1: Yeah. And, and, and again, that gets represented. This is, again, back to what I was saying at the beginning about the physical stuff as, as being, in a sense, metaphorical. Right. Yes. Um, you know, this is manifested in physical force by Ungoliant's <laughs> body against, against Nessa's body. And that's when Tolkien's, and that's what Tolkien's does. Tolkus then can come in and, and then actually, maybe we have Ungoliant change into spider form at mm-hmm. the end. And it's, oh, right, yeah. It's Ungoliant in spider form, so she is she is in she is in 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 you know in woman form at the beginning, and then she switches to spider form to consume Nessa, and that and it's the spider form that then Tolkis comes down and beats off. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, yeah,
0: I yeah, and I think this works because I think for people who are concerned that it's just going to look like a, a helpless. Female character being rescued by the strong uh, male character. Like I think that, that I think this actually I think this works because it, it can be portrayed on you know the, the, I guess the issue is that the kind of strength that we're we're giving to the, to Nessa is the kind of stuff that doesn't often translate well on the screen. Yes. But I think it can be done here by showing by showing her being you know not stoic but like sort of not cowering in terror from from you know first resisting um angolians attempts to to uh, corrupt her or attempt her or whatever but then also like just being sort of generally unafraid even even if, even if she resigns herself to the fact that i can't i can't fight i can't really fight back i'm going to i'll lose a physical contest but she doesn't have to be like cowering in terror
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. Her resistance to Ungoliant. I mean, what Ungoliant wants to do, that's one of the beauty, one of of the beautiful things about Ungoliant in the published Silmarillion. Ungoliant is what I always come back to. She is like the ultimate illustration, the most pure and perfect illustration of the nature of evil in Tolkien. I don't think there is Mm -hmm. anywhere else where Tolkien um, more, uh, more sort of perfectly illustrates what evil is and how evil works. In a sense, Melkor himself is almost, <clears throat> well, he's not a knockoff of Ungoliant, but he's what we see in him is more perfectly illustrated, um, more perfectly crystallized in Ungoliant. And so mm-hmm. again, I love how this incident, Ungoliant's capturing of Nessa, can be used as, a, as ultimately a parallel, a foil for, <clears throat> for what's going on in Almoran, right? Overall, um, this is, it's it's a dramatization of what is at stake in Melkor's relationship with all of the rest of the Valar. He is going to try to, he's not physically consuming them like Ungoliant is going to physically consume Nessa, but sort of spiritually, he's trying to subjugate them all. He's trying to, you know, he, he believes that all of the light, all of Arda, all of the other Valor and Meyer should be appended to himself, right? That he should be above them and they should be part of him in this sense. This is, he he wants to be master. This is what it means. Mm-hmm. With Ungoliant, it's more literal. It's more tangible, right? She wants to take all of the light and all of the beauty into herself and to have this vast swollen bag of her belly spewing forth darkness, right? The, this is... That's uh, that's the soul of Melkor. That's the soul of Melkor's evil in a nutshell. But it doesn't look that way with Melkor, right? It's 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 different. It, it appears different, but it's the essence of it. And so the way in which the innocence, uh, you know, the the innocence of of, of Almer and the innocence of the Valar, um, is 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 under threat by the acquisitive spirit of Melkor that's what's going on in the other plot too. Um, but it's being played out more slowly and it's being played out much less directly. Um, so that's the kind of, it's, it's the opportunity to really illustrate that, um, uh, to, to really illustrate that explicitly, to, to sort of show, to give <clears throat> to give viewers a kind of visual and imaginative anchor for the themes that are being unfolded in the other story, that seems to me like that would really work. Um, Yeah, yeah. Oh, and, and Trish, I agree with your comment that there could be an interesting conversation between, between the women, between Nessa and Ungoliant, uh, as women, absolutely. (laughs) I think there should be conversation there. I think there should be a really important dialogue there. Um, where you know which is which is where we see nessa's uh, nessa's defiance Nessa's sort of adherence to um, uh, to well to light to good to joy um, to well to that which is to that which is good right to 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 love to sacrifice to generosity um, all the things which are which are, all of the things of which the acquisitive spirit, the the, the dominating spirit of Ungoliant and, and Melkor, uh, I mean, are the inversion. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Um, oh, there we go. So yeah, Nick was pointed out that in doing this, we would have passed the Bechdel test, uh, 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 Dave. So there you are. <laughs> Great. We'll have, we'll have Nessa and Ungoliant, uh, have a, a discussion, discussion about something other not than not about men, yeah. yeah. Um, so there you have it. <laughs> Excellent. That makes me feel so much better. Well, there is a lot more. There would be. A, there's a lot more to do in fleshing out Ungoliant, what her motivations are exactly, and how this would work. Um, we, I would not want to shortchange Tolkis, of course, um, and how Tolkis would come in and how we introduce him, and what we show about his character. Um, there's... It, it's a lot to do. Um, and I'm actually thinking that we would want most of the screen time in this episode to be focused on the the nessa tolkas Angolian scene, um, because we could do relatively efficiently the making of the lamps. We don't need all that much. We don't need prolonged council speeches. We don't need... Prolonged uh, uh, construction montages. Um, we just need to, you know, to to sort of establish the idea. I think I, I think that could be done relatively efficiently, and we could save the bulk of our screen time for for Nessa and Tolkas. I think this is a either a totally frame-free episode or a very light frame. I don't think we spend much time with yeah. Estelle and Elrond at all on this one. Yep. but but, well, there's obviously, um, um, obviously I, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot more that can be resolved with this. There, there, I'm sure there'll be a bunch of things we'll want to come back to next time. Um, and you know, any of you who want to make sort of more detailed, uh, responses to or refutations of any of the things that I have said They are very welcome to do so um, I, you know we'll come back and we'll talk about those things at the beginning next week uh, uh, in, in next week's episode next week we shift to um, in episode 6 we're going we're gonna to do the destruction of the lamps in, in episode 6 so I should make sure to say the questions to be thinking about for next time <clears throat> questions for next time how does the crisis come? What leads to the destruction of the lamps? Um, who does the destruction of... Does Melkor himself destroy the lamps? Um, do we have somebody else destroying the lamps? Does he... Does he uh, um, d- is he seen to be destroying the lamps? Do we, have, do we have the other Valar witness Melkor himself casting down the lamps? <clears throat> or do we introduce any doubt about that? Um, you know, does he, does he have them destroyed... Um, and yet there's still, you know, people don't know... The rest of Valar aren't certain that it was done necessarily at his orders. We could do it that way. Um, what do you guys think about that? So is, does Melkor himself destroy the lamps? Is Melkor himself seen to be destroying the lamps? Um, and then how complete is the breach between Melkor and the other Valar as a consequence? Um, in other words, what we really need to be focusing on in this next episode is where in Melkor's personal trajectory um, we're going to be in this scene. What exactly are we wanting to accomplish, <clears throat> both in his personal trajectory and in his relationship with the rest of the Valar? Mm-hmm. Um, those are, in my mind, the, the the major the major points that we're really going to want to be focusing on. So think about that stuff for next time. And again, don't forget that next time is just next week. Um, so, uh... So, yeah, don't forget to to, do so. We're not, we're not, we're, 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 we'll be back next week. Trish should be, should be fully with us next week. Uh, Trish, it was awesome that you were able to, uh, join us uh, partially and for part of the time here. That was cool. We look forward to having you back in full next time. Um, and, uh, uh, and I be next week. Trisha's
0: presence was definitely, especially missed today. With our definitely,
1: um... especially missed today. Yeah, and I would love yeah. to. I, I hope to to give Trish an opportunity to respond uh, more fully to some of these ideas at the beginning at the beginning of our of our time next time. So uh, so cool. All right, um, very good. Well, then uh, we will say until next week. Then thanks for listening and Godspeed.